Last night, Kamala began her talk by identifying the full name of this practice is Satipatthana Vipassana Bhavana. And she spoke about Satipatthana being mindfulness, that power of the mind to observe, to see things clearly, to notice with bare attention, without comment, what's going on in our mind, in our body. The second word of that is vipassana, which is usually translated in English into insight. Tonight I want to speak about insight, the nature of insight, and uh, how it's experienced and what it's all about, what's the effect of insight. Or why bother, anyway? When we first come to practice, and what we spend most of our time doing in practice, is something like cataloging the vast range of experiences that we have in our body and in our mind, in our heart. And we instruct you to use labels so that you begin to get an idea of the kinds of experience which we actually experience, not just to generalize what physical experiences we have, what mental experiences have, what types of thoughts, but to really get quite precise, quite specific to identify in detail, actually. And as we do that, as we begin to look and label and identify, we bring our personality into sharp focus. We really begin to see you know, who we think we are and who we hope we aren't. And they're not mutually exclusive. But we begin to see how it is that we get around with our personality in the world, what works for us and what doesn't. And we can have some very revealing reflections on how we create our own unhappiness, how we create problems for ourselves, how our personality was formed uh, and is maintained to our enjoyment or to our chagrin. And these reflections and these insights into our personality level of being are very helpful for getting along in the world and maintaining effective relationships Uh, establishing and maintaining boundaries uh, to ourselves and in relationship to others. And those are important tools for which we need a lot of self-knowledge to know who we are, who we are in the world and how we get along. And that can be very profound, especially when you come on retreat and you're not engaged in uh, dialogue, and you're just by yourself, and the mind gets collected. When the mind gets collected, and believe me, all of your minds are getting collected, quite a lot, just from watching what happens day to day, moment to moment. The mind just gets settled down and gets more powerful. And when the mind gets unified, we see our life as a whole. We see it as a unity. We see ourselves in the environment, in all our relationships, whole. And very powerful uh, insights and understandings of how we can fix our life, so to speak. And I'm sure all of you have had some glimpses and insights into uh, ways and 
means of relationships and things you do at home and with others that, you know, can be repaired in some way, can be fixed, can be changed. And, and that's from really seeing how, how we are. That's useful, necessary, uh, but it's not insight. It's not vipassana in terms of uh, what the Buddha taught as the the path and practice of insight. Insight is something else, or vipassana is something else. And it's really an intuitive understanding that we come to, not from reflection, but from direct experience of our life, of our mind and of our body. And we all are having that insight all the time. And I want to point it out tonight, just what's happening, what you're beginning to see, so you can begin to understand, begin to recognize it in your practice and understand how it's happening and how it affects your life or how it will affect your life. What we have seen, just as we pay attention to the breath and the body and sounds and the mental states that come and go and thoughts, we have seen that everything is impermanent. We knew that before we came on retreat. We can read in any number of Buddhist books that everything is impermanent. And yet, somehow, when we think about it, it's like, yeah, so, yeah, what's the big deal? Of course we know everything's impermanent. But here we begin to actually live with it. We begin to live with the fact of the impermanence of our body, our mind, our mental states, momentary experiences coming and going. Insight into impermanence. A second insight is we see how difficult much of our experience is, how unpleasant a lot of it is, how uh, unreliable a lot of our experience is, how, how difficult it is to feel happy with our experience. And this is the Buddha's first noble truth that Kamala spoke about early in the retreat. The truth of dukkha, or the truth of Um, the unsatisfactory nature of much of our experience. We've seen that. We have a body that is telling us that constantly. We have a mind that's telling us that frequently. But you know, somehow, even though we see the body in pain, the mind out of control, we don't get it. We don't acknowledge the truth of that to ourselves. I'll speak more about that. The third insight that we've begun to have is into the impersonal nature of this mind-body thing that we are. The, the, The fact that we cannot really control what comes up in our practice. We can't really control what we become aware of. We can intend to direct our mind to notice certain things, but it doesn't happen all the time. And so the impersonal nature of this being that we are really tells us something, really. It exposes the truth to us, and yet we have a difficult time to actually acknowledge it. We spend a lot of our time in life seeking for security. Security in our relationships, security in our job, security through our bank account, feeling safe within our body, security at the national level. And we invest a lot. We invest a lot of our life in establishing, maintaining, and trying to create security in our life. 
we also spend a tremendous amount of time and money and energy on seeking for pleasurable experiences, wanting to eat the food that we want, wanting to hear the music that we want to hear, and wanting to uh, appear the way we want to appear. We want to look a certain way, we want to wear certain clothes, we want to drive a certain car, we want to live in a certain house, and we want that comfort. We want that convenience. And we spend, we, we, we all have our jobs that we go to in order to buy that. And thirdly, we spend in our culture maybe an extraordinary amount of energy, time, and uh, our mental energy on uh, our, our personality, who we think we are, and, you know, getting it together, and fixing our personality, and uh, becoming the person we want to be, and, you know, uh, whether it's through 12-step, or psychological workshops, or psychotherapy, or whatever it is, we are very uh, personality literate in an attempt to fix it up, get it together, uh, so we can finally be happy with who we are. What we begin to see here is that our mad drive for security, our mad drive for uh, a fixed and, and okay personality, and our uh, search for pleasure and comfort is uh, a futile task. And we see it, clear as can be, just sitting here for a week, through insight into impermanence, dukkha, or the unsatisfactory nature of experience, and the impersonality of this mind-body process. The Buddha said about impermanence, if I can find it. That if one has a faithful heart, even with a very faithful heart, a lot of confidence, taking refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha, or if one has a lot of confidence and lives an ethical life to the utmost degree, living with precepts and living a very moral life. Or even if one develops a very profound metta and loving kindness, a heart that is just compassionate and loving to everyone. These are all very meritorious and good actions, but far more meritorious than any of those is if a person cultivates the perception of impermanence, even for one moment, even for one instant, if you actually see, actually experience impermanence, that the potential of that insight is that liberating, that much more beneficial to your freedom. William Stafford, wonderful poet, died recently. In one of his poems, A Ritual to Read to Each Other, he says, I call it cruel and maybe the root of all cruelty to know what occurs but not recognize the fact. And here we're beginning to know what occurs and yet we somehow don't recognize the facts. And that's being cruel to ourselves. That's being uncompassionate to ourselves, to not recognize the truth of impermanence, of dukkha and anatta, or impersonality of this process. Why is it in our life 
that we have so much fear of change. Why do we try to uh, maintain things in a permanent, fixed, secure way? Why do we work to maintain our relationships, our jobs, our careers, or whatever? Because of fear of change, not knowing what the future brings, not knowing where we're going, what's going to happen to us. There's a tremendous amount of denial in our culture. We can look uh, facts in the face and not see them in our culture. And just, you know, I know my own experience with uh, death. You know, having uh, close friends, parents who died, my own father who died, uh, close people to me uh, dying. And never yet, I mean, into my 30s, when I was mid-30s, not even recognizing, you know, that really, that death happens. Somehow, being in the midst of it, not seeing it, not recognizing that it happens to me too, not able to let go of um, experience from the past. That's an inability to accept death. Hanging on to the past, who we were then, or how we were then, or what we felt then, being unable to let go, not trusting the present to be all that we need it to be, not accepting impermanence. Sartan that Kamala mentioned the other night has a lovely poem called Love from her Autumn Autumn Sonnets and it starts like this If I can let you go as trees let go their leaves so casually one by one if I can come to know what they do know that fall is the release the consummation then fear of time and the uncertain fruit would not distemper the great lucid skies, the strangest autumn, mellow and acute. If I can take the dark with open eyes and call it seasonal, not harsh or strange, for love itself may need a time of sleep, and tree-like stand unmoved before the change, lose what I lose to keep what I can keep, the strong root still alive under the snow. Love will endure if I can let you go. If we can learn to let go of this moment, experience it fully and let it go, then we can be there fully to receive the next moment, to be there openly, acceptantly, patiently, tolerantly, holy for the next moment. If we hang on to the past, we aren't present for the present. We're caught, we're stuck, we're fragmented, we're fractured, we're lost in the past. I think I mentioned that a friend of mine and another uh, Dharma teacher, Jack Engler, says that practice or the path of practice, or the path of insight and awakening, is one long grieving process. Learning to let go and grieve the loss of everything that has gone before. Every thought, every meeting with someone, every experience, every emotion. And really, that's what we do when we come to see what's going on here. We review the past endlessly. And until we can see the past and say, yes, that's what it is, that's what it was, and let it go, we haven't finished our grief work. Important part of waking up to the present moment, to be here now.
in practice like this, especially in intensive practice, we begin to get glimpses of impermanence because, you know, last sitting was great. You know, a couple people reported to me, boy, I had a great sitting today. You know, it was really just really calm and tranquil. And boy, I really liked that. Yeah. And I could see, I could just see, uh-oh, trouble ahead. <laughs> they're going to go back in that hall and sit down the next time and they're going to look for that same experience and it might not be there you know has anybody had that experience <laughs> impermanence strikes again you know and yet we'll say God there's something wrong with me what's wrong with my practice I must not have done something right I must, I must not be sitting quite the same way or something no fault of yours believe me it's just in the nature of things to change you're not responsible for that let that last sitting go be present for this one I remember when I was in Burma I'd been there for two weeks and as I had mentioned before my practice I could see was getting better each day as I went to report each of these days in the first two weeks. And then one day, you know, all hell broke loose and I, I couldn't, I, you know, my practice was terrible. Just really, uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't be mindful for, for two seconds. You know, if I was mindful of one thing, I was spaced out before the next thing. And it just, you know, it just was useless and I was scared to death to go report to uh, Saira Upandita and, uh, but I had to. You know, it was expected. So I went and told him that I didn't really want to report, and you know. And uh, he encouraged me to speak, and I did, eventually. And what I remember of that, and what I now actually, how I understand what was going on there, the insight into impermanence was so clear, was so clear that even from one moment to the next, Everything was impermanent. This mindfulness of this moment is gone before the next moment. In that moment, also mindful and impermanent gone. And so, not only do the objects of our experience appear to be fleeting and passing, but our practice itself is impermanent. Important to remember. Really important to remember. Well, I know you'll forget. But it's really important to have heard it so that when you, disc- when you actually see that your practice is just as impermanent as everything else, your mindfulness is just as impermanent as everything else, your tranquility also, huh? then you don't take it personal. It's not your problem. It's not your fault. You're not doing anything wrong. That's the way it is. And there comes the time when the mindfulness is clear enough to actually see that. It's impermanent. Well, that was just the first kind of big shock in practice. You know, practice just doesn't go from, you know, no concentration, tranquility, and understanding, straight line to great concentration, insight, and understanding. It doesn't go that way. You know, it's pretty up and down, up and down. And we don't know what it's going to look like. The second uh, major insight into impermanence that really shook me and threw me for a loop was when I began to see that not only do the objects that are going by, are they impermanent? Not only is mindfulness and concentration that impermanent, the mind itself, consciousness itself is impermanent. And it's when you get into practice and everything is just dissolving in front of you and you can't maintain any sense of who you are or what practice is or what's happening and it's just an empty show it's that impermanent you know and it can be terribly frightening to let go of our mind or what we think is who we are and yet in comes in practice it comes profound insight into impermanence. If we resist, if we insist on maintaining permanence fixed things in our life, 
a fixed sense of who we are, fixed relationships, fixed uh, image and per- perception of our body and mind, we're going to suffer. That's all there is to it. If we insist on maintaining permanence, we're setting ourselves up for unhappiness. Because the truth of it is, everything's impermanent. And if we learn to live with that, we can live with joy and happiness, some rest, some peace, some, some uh, understanding of the way things are. That's impermanence. Secondly, I want to speak about dukkha. And dukkha is usually translated in English as suffering. Well, I had heard, you know, in the early years of Dharma practice, I'd heard this word dukkha and translated as suffering. And I, you know, the first noble truth of the Buddha is the truth of suffering. You know, everything is suffering. And I just, I couldn't relate to it. And what do you, what do you mean everything is suffering? I'm not suffering. I'm fine, you know. I like practice, but I just couldn't relate to the word suffering. And then when I went to Burma, uh, Saito Pandita used to have a variety of translators that would translate his talks. You know, some would translate for a couple months, then another one would come and translate. And for the most part, they used the word uh, suffering. But one of them started using the word the oppressive nature of experience. Oh, the oppressive nature of experience. And when he, for some reason, I got it. I could, under, I could, I could identify with that. Yeah, there was you know, some experiences in my life that was kind of oppressive. And so I began to open to uh, just what dukkha meant. It's important, I think, for us to have a clear understanding of what the Buddha meant when he spoke about dukkha. Buddha said, there are 11 conditions that he calls dukkha. And the first of these is being born. There's the physical fact of being born. You know, probably not pleasant for the mother and probably not pleasant for the baby. Maybe, maybe not, I'm not sure, can't remember. But it sets up the stage for the rest that comes in life. Certainly not all pleasant. The Buddha said, aging, growing up at every stage of life's journey, is also not pleasant. Can you remember those stages in your life that weren't pleasant? Or those mothers here among you, can you remember your children's growing up at certain stages that wasn't pleasant? I think we can all identify with how difficult it is to you know, get through certainly puberty and teenagehood and, uh, you know, early adulthood and middle adulthood and late adulthood. And, you know, it seems pretty uh, ubiquitous that there's some, there's some hard work to be done here growing up. And uh, it's not all pleasant. It's not all easy. It's not all satisfactory. And there's demands upon us that, you know, sometimes we'd just rather not meet. But as we grow old, it becomes very obvious that this body and mind are on their way out. And that process of aging is certainly, obviously, unpleasant and unsatisfying, oppressive. Death itself. If we can actually open to the fact of death, open to the fact of our own death, then I think we can see just how much fear we have, how much denial we have, how much confusion we have, how unknown the whole process of dying actually is. And yet it's one of the, it's one of the biggies in our life, you know, being born and dying. And we don't know much about it. And yet when we begin to open to death, our own or others, we can see how it, it's unpleasant even to think about because it's so unknown, because it's often painful. 
and because we don't know what happens after death. Other examples of dukkha, sorrow, worry, lamentation, wailing, pain, physical pain, mental pain, discomfort, disease, grief, anxiety, despair, depression. The list is almost endless. Having to associate with people that you don't like. Unpleasant, unsatisfying condition in our life, and we all have to do it. We all have to work with or live with or near people that we'd rather not be with. And a corollary of that is not being able to be with the people that you love. And sometimes we can't, for one reason or another. Can't live near, can't be with those that we love. And lastly, but certainly not most insignificant, is wanting and not being able to get. Whatever it is you want, when you can't get it, it is just so unpleasant and so unsatisfying. And the Buddha said, this is the condition of our life. A lot of our life is like that. And we know that. And yet somehow we refuse to acknowledge the fact that that's the way it is. Now, when I was brought up, my mother told me, look, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. And that's the way I used to treat dukkha. It isn't nice, don't talk about it. But, you know, at some point I began to realize that my teachers were talking about dukkha and I was experiencing dukkha and it was time to kind of uh, take a look at it consciously. And I really had to thank my teachers for uh, bringing dukkha out of the closet, so to speak. And just saying, you know, life really is not all roses. It's difficult at times. I don't know about you, but my denial was really strong, really thick. You know, I could be suffering terribly and not know it. I, you know, when nobody tells you that it's, that it's okay to be that way, and when your mom says, you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all, then you can deny it. You don't have to see it. And the vast majority of people living in our culture are in mad pursuit of finding uh, those things, those experiences, those relationships that are going to provide that satisfaction. Temporarily, momentarily. Pleasure is satisfying. And it's also very fleeting. It just isn't very substantial. How much pleasure can we string together before we actually feel completely satisfied? It's impossible. We can't string together enough because pleasure isn't the solution, it isn't the answer to a dissatisfaction. Seeing things and living with things the way they are is. When we begin to open to dukkha, when we begin to acknowledge it, we see it very clearly here. Our bodies, our minds, unpleasant, unsatisfying. When we begin to open to it, we begin to uh, let it be, not struggle against it. Turn around, face your fear, face your hunger for being satisfied. Look at that hunger once be done with it. But no, we're constantly trying to satisfy it without really looking at what's it feel like to be unsatisfied. It's actually much easier to turn your mind around and say, what is this feeling? Can I be with that? And to let go of this mad pursuit of satisfaction, for satisfaction sensual gratification. The, the Buddha talked about dukkha. He talked about three kinds of dukkha. There's dukkha dukkha, which is 
obvious physical and mental suffering. You know, pains in the body, depression, despair, frustration, disappointment. Very obvious. He also talked about anicca dukkha. And that is uh, the fact that even pleasant, satisfying experiences change. And because they change, they don't they aren't reliable. They aren't they can't provide that security, that safety, that continuity of fulfillment that we crave. And so because they change, they're actually unsatisfying. It's not to deny that pleasure isn't pleasure. It is. But it's dukkha in that it doesn't last. It doesn't provide that which we want permanently. There's a third kind of dukkha. It's called sankhara dukkha. And it's really the unpleasant nature of every mental, physical experience. In part because we have to maintain this body. We have to maintain this mind. And we have to work to do that. And often we have to work in ways and at things and at times that's unsatisfying, that's unpleasant, that's hard, that's difficult, that's demanding. And so whatever that work supports partakes of that unsatisfactory nature. There comes a time in practice, too, when the mind is so alert so sensitive, the mindfulness is so precise that even the slightest contact with our senses, our ear door, our eyes, our tongue, whatever, is painful. Where any sound, and maybe you experience it, sitting here very quiet, and somebody comes in and slams the door. Painful. Or sometimes you just open your eyes after sitting and immediately they close again. Painful. When I was in Burma, the first hot season in Burma, I'd never lived in the tropics. I'd always lived in New England. And I went to Burma in December, so it was nice. And January was pretty nice. February started getting hot. March and April were like an oven. And, you know, about... You know, March or April, I was really getting into my practice, and I was just seeing dukkha real good, and I was sweating. And before each sitting, I would take a towel, and I would wipe myself down, wipe the sweat off, and then I would sit. And in about two minutes, I would start sweating. And it's interesting, when your mind is so quiet and so precise, you can feel a bead of sweat come out of the body and land on this and, and come to rest on the skin. And it feels like somebody's sticking a pin in you. Can you imagine going through a hot season where every bead of sweat felt like somebody was sticking a pin in you? This is Sankara Dukkha. It's not that somehow we don't experience it here. It's that our minds aren't that precise, aren't that clear. We don't want to see that. We don't. We don't want to acknowledge dukkha. We don't want to acknowledge the dukkha of this body. It's unpleasant. It's unsatisfying. It's painful. Well, folks, insight takes you down that path. It's actually a liberating insight. Because when we learn that dukkha is a reality. That's the way things are, whether it's dukkha, dukkha, anicca, dukkha, or sankhara, dukkha. When we learn to live with that fact, then we don't create unnecessary suffering. We begin to let pain be pain, but not suffer with it. And there's a big difference between the pain of discomfort in the body, the mind, and making yourself miserable because of it. That's suffering. The secret in practice is there's always going to be pain. There may not always be suffering. If you have a body, you will experience pain. 
no amount of practice is going to take that away. No amount of insight, no amount of tranquility or whatever is going to take away feeling pain in the body. But insight into dukkha and understanding can free you from the resistance to seeing that, an attachment to pleasure, an attachment to satisfying physical conditions, so that you don't suffer with it. That's where liberation takes place. That's where freedom takes place. Emily Dickinson, that nice gentle poet over in Amherst, Massachusetts. She wrote, There is a pain so utter it swallows substance up and covers it with trance as if in a dream. That's how we live our life. There is a pain so utter it swallows substance up and covers it over in it as in a, in it, with trance as if in a dream. We live our life as if in trance, in a dream. I mentioned this uh, old Hindu sadhu in Bombay, I think, Calcutta. Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj. Fantastic uh, insight into the nature of the mind and uh, the nature of liberation. And his, his way of teaching was people would ask him questions and he would give answers. And so one questioner said, how can I possibly enjoy pain? Physical pain calls for action. And Maharaj says, of course. And so does mental pain. The bliss is the full awareness of it in not shrinking or in any way turning away from it. All happiness comes from awareness. The more we are conscious, the deeper the joy. Acceptance of pain, non-resistance, courage and endurance, these open deep and perennial sources of real happiness, true bliss. And the questioner, not quite getting it, says, well, why should pain be more effective than pleasure? Maharaj says, pleasure is readily accepted while all the powers of the self reject pain. As the acceptance of pain is the denial of the self, and the self stands in the way of true happiness, the wholehearted acceptance of pain releases the springs of happiness. When pain is accepted for what it is, a lesson and a warning, and deeply looked into and heeded, the separation between pain and pleasure breaks down and both become experience, painful when resisted, joyful when accepted. The truth of dukkha. The third insight, area of insight that we're beginning to develop, beginning to see into, is the insight into the impersonal nature of this phenomena that we are. When we pay close attention in our sittings, in our walkings, and we feel the body, we see the mind, we get a glimpse really into how it really isn't happening at under our control. We're not really making it happen. We're not making the body feel the way it feels. We're not making the mind do what it does. Who is? What is? What's happening in there? Is there anyone in there controlling the show? Or is this just an impersonal phenomena rolling on? There are a few things that we identify with as who we are. And the first is our body. For the most part, we have a very close identity with our body. You know, if our body feels good, we feel good. 
if our body feels miserable, we feel, we feel miserable. If our body looks good, we're happy. If, if, you know, when we look in the mirror, if our body doesn't look so good, we say, oh, I'm not so happy. And we get really, we're really identified with our body. That that's who we are. And yet, it's really not our, it's not who we are. We don't control it. It's going to grow old and die and get sick and pain and do what it does without our permission anyway. And so it's so obvious that that's not really who we are. That's not our deepest essence. But there are other things. We like to think that... um, who we think we are, who we remember being, is really who we are. You know, I was born in 1949. My mother and father were so-and-so, and I grew up, and I went to school, and I did this, and I had these uh, friends, and I did this, etc., etc., etc. And I can recite the whole thing. I can write an autobiography. And we get identified with that. Is that who we are? Are we that sequence of memory that's been carried along moment to moment? The Buddha, in his clarity, in looking at the mind, realized that you know, the past exists only as memory. And when we identify with that memory, then we think that that's who we are. But when we see clearly that remembering is just another impersonal process, we can't remember everything we want to. And sometimes we have to remember things that we don't want to. We don't control our memory. It's an impersonal process that arises when conditions come together, but it's not who we are. Well, I'm the one who decided to come to this retreat. I'm the one who comes in here and sits every day. I'm the one who gets up and walks. That's who I am. I'm the one who intends to do all these things and then does them. Right? Right. Now, a couple days ago, we suggested that you start noting intentions. Hmm? That you start noting the intention to adjust your posture when it gets a little achy in sitting. That you start noticing the intentions to reach for the doorknob before you reach. To uh, the intention to uh, stand up before you stand. To sit down before you sit. To before you make any major body movement, any postural change. Why? So that you begin to see that you know. The intention to do something is also an impersonal thing. You don't intend to do that. Intentions come together. They just arise spontaneously due to conditions. You know, when the body is painful, the intention to move the body arises. And after that, then we adjust the posture, we settle back down. And we intend to be mindful. And. Uh, Does it make any difference? No. So what makes us so identified with our intentions, our volition? It's another impersonal phenomena that comes together, arises due to conditions, and sometimes we say, yeah, that's me, and we act. And sometimes we say, that's not me, and we don't act. That's not who we are. That's another impersonal phenomena. Well, maybe it's our thoughts. Oh, by now you've seen enough thoughts to realize that that's not, that's not under your domain. What is? What really is the um, controlling uh, director of the show here? Not memory, not volition, not the body, not your thoughts. Is there anything in control? Hmm. Or is this just kind of an automatic unfolding process just passing by? When we begin to see, I mean, we're seeing this. I'm not telling you anything that you haven't seen. You're beginning to see that, you know, this really is an impersonal process. You know, but like William Stafford says, you know, it's hard to accept the fact. Very difficult. When we begin to see this, in spite of our resistance, we're going to see it. 
then we can learn to live with the flow. Stop resisting. Stop picking and choosing, liking and disliking, approving and disapproving, and just settle back and be with it. Watch it unfold. Watch it flow by. Stop resisting and open to the fact of the impersonal nature of this process. Learn to live in peace with the way things are. That's what we learn through seeing this. And until we see it, until we really get it, you know, and we get it in bits and pieces, we get it in, you know, little, little, little doses of it. And the more we can see and let be, the greater our joy, the greater our happiness, the greater our contentment and peace. This feels awfully heavy. Huh? No? Okay. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, the nature of insight is not reflection. It's not something you think about. It's something that happens intuitively. And we're just sitting here watching the breath and the thoughts and the body sensations go by. And intuitively, we are getting this insight into impermanence, into dukkha, into anatta, or the impersonal nature of it. We don't have to think about it. We don't have to agree with it. We don't have to know where, which moment we got that insight. It happens just by being here and sitting through everything that you sit through. It's like walking in the fog. You know, you don't even know you're getting wet. But if you walk long enough, you're going to get soaked. Well, if you sit long enough and you just watch things come and go, you're going to get insight. That's the way it works. You don't have to think about it. When, when you do get some experience, some depth of experience, of course, then you begin thinking about it. And actually, these, these facts of our life can provide powerful guidance for how to live our life. When we know and accept the fact of impermanence and dukkha and anatta, or the impersonal nature, then we can stop struggling to make it otherwise. Powerful condition in our life. Powerfully freeing insight to learn to live in the present moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.